Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Never Delegate Understanding, this time with Liz Salmi. When Liz was 29, Liz was diagnosed with astrocytoma, a type of brain cancer. She faced several difficulties in her treatment, including one surgical removal of the tumor that grew back within months, requiring a second brain surgery. In this period, she started blogging about her journey with brain cancer, the patient blog, the Liz Army, building a community around her of people all over the world that, for different reasons, wanted to know what was it like to live with brain cancer, and what was she going through? Some of the members were people living with brain cancer, and they shared their own experiences with her. She became more and more enthusiastic about patients sharing their stories together, helping each other, and, and eventually gaining some agency over their own data. She started participating in more activities about patient empowerment, including the e-patient movement. And she's been playing leadership roles in how to be sure that people are better informed about their medical decisions as well as having full access to their medical record. She has led communications for a palliative care advocacy organization, which was subject of a documentary film on health data transparency, and became a Stanford Medicine X e-patient scholar and a TED-Med frontline scholar, and began working with Open Notes research team at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Medical School, and launched and co-led a palliative neuro-oncology research network. I mean, all those things by one person. It's amazing. Welcome, Liz. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Liz, you know, one thing I'm fascinated about uh, when I read about your story and, and you know, knowing you and I, everyone should know, having deep admiration for you is, like, how does this happen? You know, I, I think it's the ideal thing that people who are facing health challenges are activated and engaged and begin um, exerting themselves in terms of finding out about their condition. I mean, the whole title of this podcast, Never Delegate Understanding, is about how people can can really understand the issues around them and engage with the people around them who are trying to help them. But but how did that happen for you? Because in the midst of finding out that you have this astrocytoma, I mean, there's so much going on, and and yet you sort of emerged out of this strong. I mean, how, how does that happen? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and one I've been wondering about over the last few years myself. I mean, it's been 11 years since my diagnosis with a, with a diagnosis with an astrocytoma, which is a malignant brain tumor for those who don't know everything about brain tumors. And my background is not in healthcare in any way. And now I look at these last 11 years and wonder, how did I get into this? You know, how did a person like me who didn't have this background um, suddenly start doing all these things. And when you read off my intro, which whoever wrote that, if it was you, great job, uh, <laughs> captured it all. And I'm like, how did, how did I do all these things? Um, and then how, it, it sounds like the, the premise of this podcast is to say, how can regular people get more involved in that way? And I'll just first start by saying, I don't think everyone needs to run off and join the circus of healthcare. Uh, <laughs> That's for sure. And, and yeah, and, and everyone, you know, wants to go back to living their lives if they're diagnosed with something serious or a chronic condition. And we, we will, we will, not all of us will escape this world unscathed with healthcare. We, we all need to see the doctor at some point um, or deal with something or care for somebody else. 
And something I've been getting at recently is I don't think everyone is going to turn into a Liz Salmi or Hugo Campos, nor need, need they be. But I do think it's important for people to get curious about their own health. And the sooner you do that before something serious happens, the better so that you're better prepared when, you know, you, you're in the doctor's office and you're potentially hearing bad news or learning that your life is going to change. And yeah. I was just wondering, maybe uh, it's useful to just go back to that time and, and just give us a little perspective. So you're, you know, you're living your life. Uh, I assume you didn't really have health issues. How did you find out you had yeah. cancer? Right. Well, with brain tumors, there's so many different signs and symptoms that you eventually learn that you have a brain tumor. But in my case, I had I was working my job doing digital communications for an architecture firm. And I was at work and I had a grand mal seizure and eventually landed in the ER and scans showed that there was this mass in my brain. And just so and just so people know, I mean, a grand mal seizure is, you know, your whole body starts you lose control of your whole body, right? I mean, right. Somebody must have found you on the floor uh, writhing or something, right? It's uh... Absolutely, yeah. And it's very dramatic. It's the kind of seizure you see on TV because it makes the best TV. Uh, I actually had three seizures that day within an hour and a half of each other. So something was clearly wrong. And it, as the person who's going through that seizure, you don't really have much memory of that time. You have to rely on the accounts of others from friends, coworkers, doctors, my medical record. I can, if I read the record now, I, I get a recounting from the hospital's perspective of me having these seizures. And then I'm on, on the ride of healthcare. And when you're dealing with a brain tumor and seizures, suddenly all these new medications are added to your system and you're kind of out of it for a couple months as your body acclimates to this. So I was not really an active participant in my care. I was a very passive participant because I didn't know what to do. And not many folks are experts of brain tumors when they get introduced to the concept that now they're this patient. And before that, you're, you were totally healthy? Totally healthy. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. no no medications at that time other than you know birth control because I was 29. And that that was it. Nothing hmm. else. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so how did this conversion come from, you know, sort of being passive? I mean, I can imagine you would just tell me what to do. You're telling me. I mean, the first moment yeah. someone says you've got a brain cancer, I mean, I, I can't imagine it's not a teachable moment. You're like you're not absorbing yeah. much more than that at that point, right? right? It's like a... yeah, you and, and and FYI, I now serve on the board of directors for National Brain Tumor Society, uh, coolest nonprofit uh, advocating for brain cancer research, brain tumor research in the country, and so I know a lot more about what that experience is like not just for me, but for most people and most patients and families, when they learn about having a brain tumor, we immediately look to who are the experts and we will do exactly what they say because it's so overwhelming. So you look to your doctors and most folks will hear from a neurosurgeon at the moment you know, within a day or so after diagnosis. And the immediate response from a neurosurgeon is, I should operate. <laughs> and because that's what they do. Yeah. And we're, we're now learning that not all neuros, well, I'm now learning not all neurosurgeons are trained in brain tumor removal. They, there's all kinds of different kinds of brain surgeries. And so getting to a specialist who, who's, who specializes in tumor removal is really critical at that point in time. I didn't know that though. So I had surgery within, you know, uh, 
very quickly after finding out I had a tumor. And and when did you start blogging? What was the thing about that? How did you how did you yeah. that cuz that seems to me to be an important part of your transition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking back, I can clearly see this transition for me over time because of the blog, but going into it, um, there was no strategy or plan. So for me, it was only natural to go, what do I do with this time, you know, in healing, post-surgery, now on, you know, chemotherapy, relearning how to walk, like, what do I do during this time to feel productive, like, like to reclaim my identity as Liz Salmi, this web nerd. And so my instinctual response was, oh, I'll start a blog about this and I can continue to hone my skills as this web nerd and then write. And in time, I realized this was very cathartic to kind of capture my experience plus friends and family members who are worried about me wanted to know what was going on so I could just point them to one place. And so in blogging, you have a comment section. So patients and people through Google searches and search engine optimization, which was the thing I did because I was a nerd, were hmm. finding this blog and leaving comments. Yeah, that's really brilliant because really the doctors don't have this perspective. They don't know what it's like to actually live through it. They don't have the lived experience of receiving the medication. Now they can watch other people. They can try to elicit, you know, information from them when they see them. But that's not the same as the wealth of wisdom that accumulates based on actually living through the experience. And and so that, uh, I mean, it must have been a revelation to you to sort of see that uh, one that this is missing. But in in creating that space and then seeing where people were coming from to comment around not just the United States, but around the world, I realized there was this whole world of people who were having the same questions as I had. And again, as a, this web nerd, I would look at the, the analytics of where people were coming from and then the search terms people were using to find my blog and realized, oh my gosh, everybody wants to know what this particular type of chemotherapy feels like to be on. And so I would write more about that, recognizing that's what people were interested in. And it, it, it started to dawn on me that, huh, everyone is getting prescribed the same oral chemotherapy for malignant brain tumors, um, different dosing, but we're pretty, pretty much all of us are going to be on this as it's our only frontline treatment. And our doctors can talk to us about here are the side effects, symptoms, here's how to take it, here's how healthy you need to be to continue it at this dosing, da, 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 da. but no one could talk about what it actually felt like to be taking it. And that was the only expertise that I had. You aren't official researchers, but the truth is you're generating knowledge together. The, the only limitation here is that it's not, there's not a means to disseminate it broadly to each person. They can't search it so they can find right. it. But, but you are at the very beginnings of recognizing what the power of a community of people living through the experience could be in helping the next person who has to face a similar situation. Yeah, and in 2008, 2009, we're that, everyone who kind of entered healthcare um, at that time were people like me who suddenly had access to things like patient portals to log in, email our doctors, pick a doctor, or uh, order prescription refill, set appointments. All of these different hospitals and health systems were asked to share information with people, with patients, through these digital tools, it was it was mandated in some way. And the information that was shared with us wasn't like they said, hey, we think the most helpful thing at this time would be, say, your doctor's notes, which are this really great context and narrative about your health situation. It was, let's give patients results to their tests, um, lab work, 
I don't know why that was decided at that time, but it could have been because it was easy. So here I was, this patient logging into this portal, send my doctor's email, you know, questions because I'm, you know, person de- dealing with a serious diagnosis and I have questions. But what I was being sent and pushed to was, hey, look at your lab results. And I thought the lab results were neat and they made me curious, but there was no context around what these lab results really meant to me. And other patients were hungry for information. We were being made curious by what we were given permission to view in these online portals, but there was real, there was no real context or narrative around it. And, and so we started to find and connect with each other. And fast forward to 10 years later, there's this explosion of people, patients living with different conditions, sharing notes, providing context. Um, I'm not sure if you know who Susanna Fox is, but she's this amazing digital yeah. health yeah, researcher. Yeah, she's terrific, yeah. Yeah, and she talks about you know peer health advice, and she studies how patients are connecting, and that doctors are concerned we're going to share wrong information with each other um, and might poo-poo this concept, but really it's that contextual information. What does it feel like for you to be on this medication? Right, and that's intrinsically correct because that's what that person felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... it's that's right. Let me just ask, I want to get fast forward to today and the, and the kind of things you're working on, but, but I want to kind of just go back to this moment where, okay, you're blogging, you've got this serious illness. Again, what I find is that, okay, there are some people for whom it's just expedient to defer and to yield to whatever anybody tells them. But there's other people who would, who have questions, who would like to know what their options are, who might, might benefit from knowing that Different people facing the same situation may make different decisions and, and both be right because of their preferences and values. But, but there's this, this thing to get over, which is asking a question. Because here you have this life-threatening illness. You're very dependent on these doctors. You, you don't want to alienate them in any way. But, but the, you may be worried that some of your questions might, might annoy them. And yeah. uh, how, how did you – like how did you navigate that? How did you get to a space where – you could feel empowered to have those conversations and not worry about that because you trusted that the doctors and people cared for you weren't going to be annoyed, but in fact, we're going to engage. That's a great question. It's still a thing I struggle with to this day. So I am not the ultimate role model. I would say at the beginning, it was listening to what the doctor says, go online and do some my own research see online that what my doctor was recommending is pretty much in line with what nearly everyone is recommending. You know, not many people get diagnosed with an astrocytoma, a grade two astrocytoma, um, still to this day. And I just read a paper um, last week that the recommendations for treatment for a person with my condition are quote controversial because there is not enough people to create a real evidence base around. Okay. So that's a side story. Um, but no, but I, by the but, way, I just yeah. want to just interject, like, Mm-hmm. That's that to me is the story in a way because so many people have conditions that for them personally as individuals, we, right. we there is some uncertainty. And what medicine is hard pressed to acknowledge is that we don't have all the answers because the doctor who walks in and says, I know exactly what you need. This is what you need, even though they are accessing the same database and are aware of the same uncertainty, they think the patient will respect me more. The patient will be more confident. And I believe they think the patient will do better because they're, they're the ones who've weighed everything in the uncertainty as opposed to walking in and say, hey, we've got a decision to make together. Hold on. I yeah, just want to say those are amazing questions because we're getting at 
a major culture change is what you're talking about that. And, and will you just use me as the case that 1500 people get diagnosed with what I have for a, every year. And literally right now, medicine and neuro-oncology cannot say, here's the best recommended treatment for how to deal with people with grade two astrocytoma. And literally in the Journal of Neuro-Oncology, the paper I just read, uses the word controversial. They, I would just pin in, on, I, I clued in on that word, controversial on what is standard of care for these people. I thought that was so fascinating. And as a patient, I go hang out in, you know, on Twitter and the patient brain tumor community, or I hang out in the Facebook brain tumor groups. And every patient is asking with my same diagnosis-ish, um, well, they're, they're trading uh, tips. They're like, well, what, is, what are you doing? What's your treatment plan? Well, we have the same diagnosis, but we all have different treatment plans. And they're confused and they're concerned and they're worried. And the internet exists. So they're, they're, they're kind of shuffling around and saying, uh, comparing notes, if you will. Um, no puns intended. And I saw this journal article. It happened to be open access. And I thought, oh my gosh, here's the answer. The answer is there are no answers. Hmm. And let me right. share this with you. And so I share a link to the journal article and some screenshots, very Eric Topol, Harlan Crumhole style <laughs> and highlighted. I mean, I learned from you guys. And so I highlighted the journal article, the key points. And I said, here you guys go. Everyone's asking, what do we do? How come we're not all doing the same things? And the reason is not everybody agrees. And that's kind of satisfying to me, Lasalmi, to know that, all right, there's no answer, but at least we know the answer is there's no answer. I don't know if there's a single neuro-oncologist who would share that journal article that I just shared with that Facebook group. That yeah, that that's sense. what I was wondering. And, mm -hmm. and also, by the way, it's great that, that people sometimes think, like, I couldn't possibly read a scientific article. But, you know, you can – you may not know all the science behind it. You may not know all the medicine behind it. But you can parse out are they – are they at least concluding that they've got something, got not got something in these review articles, whether there's a central message? It should be written in ways that, that you can understand. And, and it's great mm -hmm. that I think you're, you're accessing it. So you said you're still struggling with it. I, before I get, you know, much further on, I just want to say, so how do, you, how do you manage it? When you've got questions that may, you know, somebody comes in and says something authoritatively and you've read an article that says it's uncertain, how, how do you manage that? Right. Well, I, I wanted to share a story about, uh, and we're going to go back to 2015, 2016. So not too long ago uh, in the grand scheme of things, but if I was diagnosed in 2008, many years after diagnosis, um, in 2016, the World Health Organization put out a new uh, a reclassification of central nervous system tumors. So I'm getting really nerdy here, but to kind of explain that in lay terms, essentially the whole world of <laughs> everyone working in neuro-oncology said, hey, we need to re-describe brain tumors. Call them, um, so, because, call them something different, right? Like be able yeah, a new classification yeah. system. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because science changed right. and now um, we no longer look at brain tissue under a microscope and, and grade tumors by pathology alone. Now science can also look for special biomarkers in these brain tumors, which gives us further data and information that no longer is Liz saw me a grade two astrocytoma. Now I'm Liz Salmi, uh, grade two astrocytoma, IDH1 biomarker positive, ATX biomarker negative, <laughs> MGMT um, negative. So there's these, and, and every cancer is going through this. There's the special, I mean, there's uh -huh. subclassification upon subclassification, which is giving 
you know, all of oncology and in neuro-oncology, a better understanding of, you know, somebody with glioblastoma, the most malignant brain cancer, actually might have a more favorable prognosis than a different person with glioblastoma right. based on these biomarkers. So I'm hanging out on Twitter, following hashtags from different neuro-oncology conferences where, you know, clinicians and people who know more than me are having back-channel conversations about what's happening at the conference. And I'm following the hashtag for this neuropathology conference where they're talking about this new reclassification and other neuropathologists are taking pictures of slides from different presenters. And I learn there's this new reclassification. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I look at the slides and I look at the journal articles and learned this is happening. So I wrote a blog post to all of my fellow patients and explained as best I could in Liz Salmi lay terms where I pieced together some um, press releases from UCSF where they're talking about breaking research. I pieced together something on the National Brain Tumor Society website. And I, I was able to build, I was able to learn what was happening in brain tumors. And I realized that one of the brain tumors that a lot of people I know are diagnosed with was no longer going to exist anymore. And it made me wonder, huh, they're getting rid of that diagnosis. So what do these people have? Because if I was one of those people, I sure would want to know, well, what do I have now? And so I wrote something about it and I was learning more and digging in. And, um, and then I realized me as a person living with a brain tumor diagnosed in 2008, that those biomarkers that were now discovered in 2014, 2015, I didn't even know what my biomarkers are. So I'm getting to talking to my doctor. Mm -hmm. So I was excited. I thought, well, I know they have my tissue hanging out in a tissue bank library somewhere at my hospital. Could they pull that tissue and test it for the biomarkers so I would know what my true diagnosis is? So I, at my next appointment, I have all my notes together. I see my neuro-oncologist and we do the, you know, the regular exam. And he said, do you have any more questions for me? And I said, <laughs> yes. So I hear the World Health Organization has reclassified brain tumors. And now there's this, that, and the other thing. And I want to know. And he was just like, what, 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 what? Like, oh my gosh, what? you're coming to me with all of this. I don't think he was prepared for me to have huh. known all these things. Well. And then he was kind of, he basically said, well, we can run that tissue analysis for you and tell you what your biomarkers are. However, just so you know, once we know that, we can't unknow it. <laughs> Meaning, if I'm a person who I suddenly find out I have a worse prognosis than a more favorable prognosis, could that ca cause me more worry? And and I, <laughs> more, I know more worry than knowing you have a brain cancer. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So I just said, anyone who is diagnosed today, you would probably run this testing to find their biomarkers so you could treat them, correct? He said, well, yeah. And then yeah. I said, well, those, those people would then know, are they more favorable or less uh, favorable, correct? And he said, yes. I said, I would, I would like to know that retroactively. Like, yeah. let, let's find yeah. out. So then he said, let's wait six months. Oh, my gosh. Till I see you again so you can think about it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that can weigh on your head. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like here, he's got this ability to control what I'm allowed to know. And that. But what did you, I, what did you do? I doubled down. Yeah, I kept good. reading as much as I could. No, no. But I, I mean, in that office, that office visit you left. 
Um, well, it, yeah, it was. It, I didn't know what, to, what else to say. I just said, okay, when I'm back in six months, I'm oh going to ask this again. Wow. And he said, yes. And he's a nice guy. And I really like him. I still, he's great. He's not my doctor anymore. My health insurance changed, but he's a really amazing, really nice guy. But that was his instinctual response was, I need to protect Liz from knowing something. By, by the know. way, I never blame the doctors. This is a cultural context. I mean, it's not that a single person says, I'm going to keep Liz from information. It's it's the way we're trained. I mean, we're trained to to try to parse information. What can someone handle? You know, instead of like, well, that's your choice. You could tell me, hey, I don't want to know. That, mm-hmm. that That is your choice, and I should respect that. But, but my first move should be to say to you, here's what you could know, and how can I help you with this? I mean, y- you know, there was a time in medicine where like, you know, don't tell grandma she's got cancer because she won't be right. able to handle it. And, or, or even not just grandma, but I mean, people would hold back diagnoses because you know, we thought we knew, we, the profession, thought we knew what was best for people. But, but gosh, you would think that, I mean, it, it's sort of unfathomable to me that someone would also say in this, like, Liz, you've just, here's a bunch of information, why don't you come back in a couple of days? But like, let's deal with this again in six months. <laughs> I mean, Yeah, I mean, and I'm clearly coming very proactively to this visit with information. I'm asking, and it was, I, I you know, this is 2016 at the time, there's a cultural revolution in outside of healthcare and outside of medicine of what people can access around, around information for, for better or worse, or is it the right information? And, um, you know, in every other industry, people can find quote answers. And in medicine, there's still, there's a paywall to some information. Um, we don't, help people when when patients come into a visit sometimes they're told hey your you know your google search does not you know mean the same thing as my medical degree so there are some people who are being asked don't search you know for information and the thing is is people i can't buy a coffee maker without reading 20 reviews on amazon yeah I, I, i will tell you that i do think that i heard someone recently who said to a patient and their family you have very unusual condition don't search for it because it's just going to confuse you. And I thought like, wow, you know, that, that's a really unusual approach. And it, it to me meant uh, it, it conveyed a certain um, insecurity by the person who said that, that they didn't want to have to have that person learn things that, right. that, and to be able to have a discussion about it. Let me pivot uh, because uh, we're getting closer to the end and, and it's just been a wonderful conversation. So appreciate all of your uh, sharing of this, but let's pivot to what you're doing today because, you know, this issue of what people can be exposed to and what they can see, you know, I've th- this idea of open notes and I'm a you know great admirer, uh, of course, of open notes and my open notes and uh, all the work, great work that's uh, been done in, in that with a group. And, and so can you share a little bit about what this journey has been like for you with my open notes and where do you think we are and, and are we making progress? Yeah. So open notes isn't so uh, maybe tell people is, what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Too, yeah. 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 I want to say that. So open notes is the name of, uh, again, this is Liz language, but the name of a cool research project that then turned into a movement. And so based at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical and Center in Boston, um, headed up by Tom Del Banco and Jan Walker and Kate DeRoche, these amazing researchers. Yeah, they are over amazing. The last yeah, they're just, uh, and um, they decided to study the concept of 
well, patients have access to lab results and patients have access to X, Y, and Z, some real basic information through those online patient portals. But what if they had access to more? What if they could read what doctors are writing about them, which is already the most important part of the medical record. But up until research around this concept, we, us patients, didn't have easy access unless we went to the basement of the medical records department and did that request so, and to get those records. And so kind of fast forwarding a little bit, there was a huge study in 2010 uh, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2011 showing when 20,000 patients were provided access through those portals to their doctor's notes, the full SOAP note, uh, subjective, objective assessment and plan from a visit and a patient read it, did they benefit in some way? And spoiler alert, patients loved reading their notes. They felt like they better understood their care, more likely to understand why they were prescribed medications and likely to take those medications and felt like they trust their doctors more. And in response, doctors in advance of this kind of um, study were concerned, oh my gosh, my workload's going to increase. Patients aren't going to understand what's in the notes. And then I'm going to get all these phone calls and emails and our patients are going to worry. And all of those fears, which are documented in a survey ahead of you know, opening the, the notes to patients, none of that bore out. And we're, we're seeing long-term. So now it's nine years after the original open note study. So nine years later, over, uh, about 100 peer-reviewed published papers later about this concept of sharing notes, 30% uh, of which have not been written in any by, way by people associated with the original Open Notes Research Network, are showing the same results that patients benefit. And again, you know, 99% of patients love having access, believe they should have access. Not everyone's going to read it, but they want to have the ability to see what their doctors are writing about them. And long-term, we're seeing, yes, patients benefit. They better understand their care. And, you know, I, I can't say all these amazing things without also saying, on average, about 3% of patients say that they do, that reading the note does make them worry more. But they also feel like they trust their doctors more and better understand. Their yeah, and they care. sometimes so find mistakes in the record and you know, exactly. things that, you know, that things that can yeah. that can be helpful and and yeah, like like you said, they, they they I think it also conveys a certain trust, like transparency, like you know. Yeah. It, it, I will tell you on the doctor's side, knowing the patients are seeing notes in a regular fashion increases the quality of their notes. Yeah, I mean it, it yeah. ma makes the communication. Okay, but are we are we making progress? Are we are, are yeah. things getting better? Open Notes is now you know as a research name of a research project is encouraging healthcare professionals to share these notes with patients, saying, "Hey, this shows a great benefit. You should you should do this. We've done this here at Beth Israel. We did it at Geisinger. We did it at Harborview Medical Center, and we got a grant from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to do research dissemination, where you you share your research at conferences or or you get invited to grand rounds and talk about open notes." and then to track the spread of organizations sharing notes. So we have a lot of data around this. And since 2014, where we really started this dissemination effort, uh, 2014 through 2016, and now to today, we know uh, we went from you know the, just those original open note sites turning on the notes. So you know just a couple thousand patients, uh, 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 um, a couple uh, to a couple million, and then today. Uh, I was just running, we were looking at the numbers yesterday, and we're at 41.6 million people who are registered on portals have access to their notes at over 200 sites around the country. And are those all the notes, or you mean that they're sharing at least some of their notes? 
It's usually they, those organizations. So say it's like Yale, just you, um, uh, say Yale Health, that organization would pick a good go forth date. So they might say, okay, starting January 1, 2019, we're sharing those notes forward. But if they want notes from before that date, they have to go to medical Yeah, but like what we did was there was a comfort level with sharing outpatient notes in some practices. And then we right. went to a go forward on more practices. And now right. we're going to go to the discharge. I mean, look, look, I salute our group for pushing forward. I, as you know, I'm always impatient for progress. Like I, I would like to see all the notes immediately available to all right. the people. Th there's this other issue about whether there should be some delay in giving people right. information. And, and that's another well, your question about is it working? Is this, you know, going well? And that's a question we're asking because if you've seen one version of Open Notes, say this Yale version, you've seen one version. Yeah. All of these 200 plus organizations are kind of doing it different. An example of super transparent is I believe Mayo Clinic said, hey, we've got people coming from around the country. We're going to share all the notes past, present, future, because it actually is less work for a medical secretary's department That's for you terrific. to be able to download yeah. this information. Um, some organizations will start with a pilot in one department, then slowly creep it out across the organization over time. Others will say, all right, all ambulatory outpatient notes, you have them, um, but except for, say, psychotherapy notes, behavioral medicine, or pediatrics, adolescents. Yeah, I think so, this is going to just become normative at some point, and I think the government's going to going to come in and, and help. But this is just great work you're doing. And, and kudos to the My Open Notes group and, and Tom and, and Jan and, and Kate and you and, and the whole community around that's, that's embraced it. So, and Liz, I just want to uh, uh, ask you at the end, first, deep gratitude for the time you've taken and, and your candor and, and for the inspiration you give to all of us and the work you're doing, not just with My Open Notes, but your voice is so important in the community and I believe making such a big difference. So for people listening, just getting back to the original thing, I mean, what, what, what's your message to folks who might be facing health conditions and are, are in a more passive role but are listening to you and thinking like, yeah, how can, I, how can I get a little more involved? Do you have any parting message to folks that might be listening that, that build on your experience? Sure. I would say in general, no matter your current status of health, to be curious about your health, because even if you're healthy right now, there is going to be a point in time where you need to engage with the healthcare system and we're gonna all feel overwhelmed. So the more you start thinking about your health now and getting onboarded and used to using some of the tools different hospitals and health systems have in place, like those, and I keep mentioning online patient portals, that was my language and entree into healthcare and staying connected when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor over 10 years ago. And still to this day, those portals, while they're not, you know, the best, most optimized tool out there are the way I can check on my lab results and make my appointments and email my doctor. To be able to email a doctor is so much better than waiting on hold somewhere. Yeah. And so, so getting fluent in those digital tools, more fluent than we are using on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, just a web browser, those are an integral um, thing to be on. Um, in addition to that, to think about 
you know, how, how do you want to handle your health when you're dealing with something serious? Some, some folks, people like me, I want to know everything, but not everybody does. To your point earlier, talking about a different time period or different cultures, um, it, it's considered bad luck for the patient to know, you know, their true prognosis. So right. think about what's meaningful to you and then, and, and then get connected with a, a, a loved one or a care partner or, or just a, a partner and your family member who's ready to help uh, be your partner throughout your illness journey and then and then get ready to be curious and, and move forward i i again it's hard to give advice for um folks who are at different levels but i'd say finally if if people are listening to this and are thinking i'm ready to plug in and dig in like how can i be doing what you're doing um, start looking for cool conferences that exist where patients are invited. So that might be Stanford's Medicine X conference, Google that, or the Society for Participatory Medicine. Those are two different conferences and organizations that are excited for patients to dig in and plug in and get involved, and they have communities. And when you become part of those communities, you start learning about the next cool thing. And those are um, great um, communities for me to be plugged into that I continue to learn from until this day. I think that's a great message. And and I think that people need to know they're not alone. Uh, whether they want to go to conferences or not, they can seek out others. They can seek out other opinions. They can look for people blogging like you were. Mm-hmm. Stay curious. And and I guess I'll end it by saying and never delegate understanding. Like You can understand your situation. Liz, thank you so much. What a great pleasure to have you on the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you on uh, in on Twitter and, and all around to continue to make the impact you are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Cesar Carballo and Daisy Massey, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast, or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have new episodes in two weeks.